Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, can you feel that? That is fall break slipping through my fingers. I'm so sorry, buddy. Wah, wah. How was your week? It was great, though. I had some banger drafts. Got a lot of stuff out of my system. Had a sweet Joda deck in DMU. Yes. Had, had the Joda Squigglies deck, courtesy of your teachings. <laughs> Got the 7-2, which was nice. And then I also had a banger of an Eldraine flashback draft with Double Dance of the Mance that easily 7-0. Dance of the Mance is so sweet. For those of you that have not played Eldraine, Dance of the Mance is white, blue, X. And you return up to X artifacts and non-Aura enchantments from your graveyard to the battlefield. If X is six or more, they become four fours. It is incredibly powerful and awesome to build around. Yeah. Can I tell you about the saddest Throne of Eldraine experience I had? And it's only sad. I feel like I'm going to start talking about it. You're going to be like, what's sad about this? It's sad because <laughs> I was recording this as a CFB draft video. Okay. And about Five minutes before the end of the last game, it failed because the folder I was saving it to was full. Oh, no. So here's what happened. I fired up my first Throne of Eldraine draft at like 1 p.m. on Friday. Pack one, pick one. Oko Thief of Crowns. I was just like, lucky, lucky boy. I saw two more banned cards, uh, Once Upon a Time, which I did not take, and uh, Escape to the Wilds. I also had... Gilded Goose. So I got to have a game where I went turn one goose, turn two Oko. I got to play against Numat, Beers SC, and Cedrus of Concede Cedrus fame. It was just like, I was like, this is the greatest <laughs> draft video of all time. And, and then, then it then failed. It, and then it failed. Oh my lord. I was so tilted, especially because it was like also super long. It was like, and like two, upwards of two hours. And I was like, Oh, okay, I can't. I like cannot look at Eldrain right now. I'm so mad about not being able to do this video. <laughs> That's so frustrating. Yeah, very, very frustrating. So I, I got over it uh, yesterday and, and drafted some more Throne of Eldrain. It is super sweet. I, I was I really appreciated your tweet where you were like, I didn't realize how much I missed build around rares until this format. Yeah, you don't miss what you don't have, right? Like, yeah. But then I had it again, and I was like, oh yeah, this is a good feeling. Yeah, I mean, and it it still really holds up for me so far. And like, uh, oftentimes I feel like, eh, best of one kind of makes the format feel less good, or like aggro is more supported, or whatever. I haven't felt that yet. I've just been having a blast. Yeah, I agree. Eldraine has felt great. And I think it is moving up in my power rankings. I think I always like, man, Ethan really has Eldraine as his number one. But I remembered coming back to it, how good it is. It's some of it is so similar to DMU and some yeah. of it is so different. And then like the build around rares too. It's got that going on. Really good format. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is interesting that it's out at the same time as DMU because they both, as you said, they are similar. And as we're doing our, our 50 takes, we're saying goodbye to DMU today. Um, you know, it doesn't feel, Eldrain didn't feel like quite as special in terms of like both of these formats are unique. These are probably the two most wide open formats we've had on Arena full stop. Yes, I think that's true. And my first Eldraine draft, I just train wrecked because I was like kind of drafting it like DMU and drafted a black red deck. It was like nine, eight. I was like, wait a second. I know this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Like mana bases above everything. And it took one draft to like reset myself. And then I was humming. It was awesome. All right, sweet. Well, we are going to talk 
about 50 takes of Dominaria United in 50 minutes. That's how we send off formats in style here on Lords of Limited. So, you know, rattle off a bunch of takes about the set for, you know, folks wrapping it up with us in real time. And also these are great episodes to send people back to when they're like, oh, hey, I'm new to Magic. I didn't play DMU when it was out. I mean, it's a great thing to do for Throne of Eldraine. You know, people are like, oh gosh, which podcast episode should I listen to? That's the first one that we send them to. So this is a really great way to send off a format in style. And it's definitely one of our favorites. So it's going to be awesome to discuss all of these points with you today. A couple of housekeeping things to take care of before we dive into that. First things first is the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. We have a lot of sweet perks over at the Patreon page. Base level for everybody who gives back to the show is access to the Lords of Limited Discord. And with a new set right around the corner next week, we'll be talking about the Brothers War previews and then the Crash Course will be the week after. And you are going to want to get in on the Lords of Limited Discord in preparation for your first few drafts of Brothers War. It is an excellent place for 24-7 limited text support as spoilers start rolling out that's when the channels start really popping off people are talking about each and every card as it gets spoiled and i mean people talk about the rares but people are talking about the commons and uncommon so if you want that sweet limited action the preparation for who how did how does this card work with this card and are these going to be archetypes and all that speculation the discord's an awesome place for that and each and every week want to shout out our new patrons but this week we're just going to be shouting out and thanking our past patrons our present patrons and any future patrons out there we really really appreciate your support yeah cannot say thank you enough and honestly it is wild that this has only happened a few times in lords of limited history and i think that's just a testament to how incredible all the people are to listen to our podcast and the pledge to patreon each and every week i cannot possibly express adequately in words how thankful i am to have the podcast you and our community in my life 100 percent agree all right show is also brought to you by tcg player tcgplayer.com best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related tcg player and channel fireball kind of one in the same now if you haven't heard the news and i don't know that we've really explained how our affiliate link works with tcg player so i just want to dive into that for a second so essentially our affiliate link is tcg player's website but coded so that everything you do on the website registers as lordsoflimited.com and then purchases you make give us a kickback and also just let tcg player know that you're supporting us and that we sent you to tcg player which is a huge deal for why they're partnered with us as a podcast so we want to make sure that we send support their way so there's two main ways you can do that one you can go to lordsoflimited.com slash tcg player type that in your web browser or if you forget that you can go to our website lordsoflimited.com click support and then click the tcg player link there as well so two different ways that you can navigate to our affiliate link and then anything you do on the tcg player website helps us out the best thing you can do there is get a tcg player subscription it's 6.99 per month and what that gives you is a couple things it gives you free shipping and tracking on all your orders gives you extra bonus bucks which is essentially store credit on any purchases that you make and most importantly, access to our CFB Pro articles. So if you were on Channel Fireball Pro before to get access to me, Ethan, Alex's articles, other pros, that subscription's over. And if you want continued access to those articles, all that stuff has migrated over to TCG Player. And so you can get a TCG Player subscription, and it'll be essentially like having your CFB Pro subscription plus all these extra perks, the free shipping, the bonus bucks, all that stuff. And if you're not interested in getting on TCG Player subscription, you can also just order things on their website. For example, you know, maybe buy a box of Dominar United Sealed or pre-order some Brothers War Sealed product to draft with your friends. So anything that you do on TCG Player's website, please take the time to navigate to our affiliate link and let them know that we sent you over there. Boom, baby. All right, Ben, you ready to get 50 minutes on the clock? 
Let's do it. All right. 50 Dominaria United takes in 50 minutes. Kick us off with point number one. DMU is the most balanced set we've seen released on Arena. Everything is viable. There isn't really any color disparity. I mean, I think red shook out to be definitely the worst, but I've had red-based decks. I mean, blue-red is a great deck. You know, shout out to Miria's Outrider. We'll talk about that later on in the episode. But like, even by the end, when I, I was sort of holding out for Rakdos or Selesnya, maybe being fringe decks, like even those found their day in the sun, you know, I think all the color pairs were viable. I think all the color pairs with little splashes were viable. Every draft felt new and exciting and that there was never a sort of like path you couldn't go down. Yes, I do agree with that. It felt like there were a lot of different paths to take and a lot of them led to success, whether it was, you know, red, white, heroic beatdown or five color domain soup or blue spells. There were a lot of unique identities to decks and they all felt like they had good gameplay against each other. Point number two, there are two schools of thought when it comes to the set. We here at Lords of Limited subscribe to the school of thought that there are 20 decks in the format. And some might say there are only four or five decks in the format. And I think if you subscribe to that view, it's just not giving the format enough credit, in my opinion. I think, you know, you could say there's blue spells, there's domain, there's black graveyard decks, there's white go wide decks, and that's it. But there's so many unique flavors of all of those. And there's two color decks, there's five color decks, there's two color plus a splash decks, there's you know, blue-white control decks, there's blue-white aggro decks, there's just so many flavors of decks. I remember back early in the format, I think like week two or something, I drafted this blue-white tempo flyers deck that had double combat research and like shore ups and take up the shields to protect the creatures I was putting the auras on. And it worked like that was also a good deck. So even within like, well, you could be like a blue white control deck or a blue white tempo deck, or you could be building around these, you know, sort of niche uncommons that you saw or, you know, like, I just think that to lump everything into, oh, those are all blue spells decks is just really, as you said, selling the format too short. And you probably never drafted that blue white tempo flyers deck ever again. Like there's so many decks like that that are you know, draft dependent. And each draft was kind of its own unique beast as far as the options that were available to you, you know, to push down in the draft. Agree. Number three, off color kicker is the defining feature of this format. And what a feature it was. Holy cow. So good. Yeah, it's so interesting because like it doesn't work in the context of other formats where there isn't this abundance of fixing, right? The dual lands really are sort of part and parcel as to why this was effective. And I think the dual lands at common were very interesting. We'll talk about those a little later as well. But I, I just think it really led to such interesting deck building choices. It led to interesting card evaluations where you had to sort of bucket the things as, okay, this is actually a secret black, white, gold card. Or, you know, I'm thinking about Banalish Sleeper in that context. Or maybe you want it in your white, red aggressive decks because you're happy with a two mana three one there. Or like, this is worth splashing. Like, I have to make sure I can kick Urborg Repossession at all costs, you know? And so I'm definitely going to want some green sources in my blue, black deck, whatever. Like, it really led to a lot of cool intricate card evaluation decisions or even something like battlewing mystic which had the red kicker like are you aggressive enough to support battlewing mystics kicker do you have the ability to kick it do you want a 2-1 flyer if you can't kick it it was just so good and i think off color kicker led to all of the interesting decisions in the draft as well 
Like, does taking this off-color kicker card open me up to pivot into this other two-color deck? Can I still play it even if I don't pivot into that other two-color deck in this other deck that I'm thinking I may be going to draft? It was just so many layers of complexity. Yeah, are you seeing a late Keldon Strike team and know that there was one in your opening pack and, oh, it wheels, and so now I'm going to move into red-white? Like, yeah, really, really interesting. I think with, with the double gold uncommons for each color pair, plus all of the secret gold cards within the uncommon and common kicker cards, it just led to, you know, signals galore. And as we're going to talk about in the next point, there are many viable paths through DMU drafts. We, we say that word a lot, right? We say path. W- what does that mean? I feel like we, we there's like, it's a very like ethereal word of like, yeah, I kind of know what you mean when you say path through a draft. But what does that mean to you? I think to me, path is, okay, I take this card, pack one, pick one. I took a blue card. It makes sense to follow up my blue card, pick two with another blue card that's good. So I have two blue cards now. Pick three. I see a choice between a pretty good blue card and a pretty good black card. I'm going to take as a tiebreaker the blue card. And then I start seeing some good black and I take some black cards. Okay, so I had a blue black path through the seat. But then maybe in pack two, I start seeing some good red and white. But I'm so deep into blue and red that I never had a chance to get into red or white. You know what I mean? Like based on pick orders and how good you think the cards are, there is like sort of an optimal route you should take through a draft. Or when a decision is close, that's a place where the path branched off. But so many times, you know, you make a draft video or you do a draft on stream and people are like, well, red, white's obviously open. But did you ever have a path where you could have logically gotten into red, white based on how the draft started for you? Like there's almost roads that you can take based on how good cards are. And sometimes there's one path that's optimal. Sometimes, you know, there was a a fork in the road where you could have taken one of three paths. But then ultimately, once you make that choice, it closes off other paths for you or maybe opens up new ones. Yes, I think I'm like really visualizing, like walking through a forest and seeing, okay, I have four different ways I can go at this, you know, checkpoint. And then some picks that you make open up more options, as Ben is saying, and some picks or some decision points you make in the draft, you know, if it's pack two, pick two, and you're locking in that second color. Well, now you only have one path through the rest of the the draft, right? Through the rest of the forest, the trail, whatever metaphor we're using, you only have (laughs) one route to go down, right? Um, And I think knowing when that happens is also important. Right. Or if you're less outdoorsy and you want to (laughs) think of it like a flow chart, like, do you want to take a blue card here? Yes, go this way. Do you want to take a blue card here? No, go this way. Like, And then it's a giant flow chart. But knowing how to keep paths open And then ultimately knowing when to lock in your singular path was a huge skill in drafting this format. Number five, Dominaria United is all about two for ones. Yeah, I think if the defining feature of the format is off color kicker, which I do think it is, it's what I will remember a lot. I will also remember this being divination the format, right? Phyrexian espionage, shadow prophecy, all of the, the sagas, we'll talk about read ahead a little later, like this is just so much about that incremental value because when the dust settled, who had more two-for-ones was often who was going to win. Urborg repossession. There are a couple of decks that I've posted to Twitter and people are like, what's this deck's game plan? And it is just two-for-one the opponent into oblivion. That is the game plan. Just outvalue the opponent and then win with whatever cards you have remaining. Number six, the common cost reduction creatures were A plus design. And shout out to you. I think this was week one of the format like after we had played it for a few days you were like these are the keys to understanding the set and i i really couldn't agree more 
yeah, I think understanding those led to understanding the format at a base level as a whole, like knowing that Tolarian Terror wanted spells and okay, that's what blue decks wanted to do. Knowing that Necromass was real and a 5-5 death touch and that kind of graveyard stuff was what black decks with Necromass wanted to do. It was less true for Molten Monstrosity and Red, but Sojourner definitely pointed towards you with green and okay, that is domain stuff. And Argivian Phalanx in white pointed you toward, okay, white wants to be aggressive, get on the board, go wide, all that sort of stuff. And I think it's really cool that in preview season, none of us were really on those cards as premium. And then they ended up being best cards in the format and i think the old adage of you know cheating on mana great way to get ahead in magic and these commons let you cheat on mana i i want to also make a case for molten monstrosity being secretly good design as well because it lets you know that red at common doesn't quite work Mm. i don't think that's an intention of the design but i think that does let you you know if you recognize okay blue is spells black is graveyard white is go wide green is domain red you just need higher rarity stuff because it red isn't really about high power like yeah you could do the molten monstrosity stuff in red green aggro but that wasn't even like your best red green aggro decks didn't really care about monstrosity anyway right i agree with that and i think you know there was a lot of discussion about this format not having good rares or not having build around rares and we got these build arounds at common which is just a different rarity to get them at and it does different things to a format right Because Mm -hmm. these were build arounds at common, they shaped the whole format around themselves because you knew you were going to see them draft in and draft out. Yeah, exactly. Number seven, each color had an identity. And we kind of just went through these with the cost reduction creatures, but blue had spells and then that could be aggressive or controlling. We had white with creatures go wide and that was aggro, though as a support color, it could play a different role. But as base, white just wanted to curve out and beat down. Black, all about the graveyard, and again, could be aggressive, could be controlling, depending on what you got. Green was domain, could be aggressive if you were that red-green beatdown deck with Neshoba Brawlers, or could be control with just splish splash around, get to all five uh, colors of mana. And then red, ultimately, I think best as a support color, complementing each of those other four colors. Yeah, exactly. Number eight, enlist felt like less of a format mechanic than the cost reduction creatures, which is kind of a shame. I mean, except for the fact that I'm obviously happy to see a format for once where the aggressive mechanic isn't the best thing in the set and doesn't warp everything around it. Because there's a world where Enlist is, as I was just playing with Eldraine, there's, I think it's called Red Cap Raiders. It's the three mana, three, two. And when you attack with it, you can tap a non-human creature you control to give it plus one, plus one and trample until end of turn. And it's a really good aggressive card, but you can also tap summoning sick creatures. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) How is this fair? You're not allowed to enlist with summoning sick creatures, but there's a world where you can. And then I think that mechanic is pretty darn busted, you know? And so I think them sort of nerfing enlist maybe let a a lot of the other stuff in the format breathe. I agree completely. And I also had that same experience with Red Cap Raiders thinking, whew, I'm so glad they didn't do this with enlist. And (laughs) I think it was really cool that it was important to the aggro decks. But it wasn't super synergistic or really build around y at all. And no. back to Eldraine, speaking of things that you got mixed up with Eldraine, to unveil Treefolk, the adventure card, three and a green, put two plus one plus one counters on something. Holy cow, I wanted that to be Dreadlin Orm so badly. I tried to cast it at instant <laughs> speed back to back games to lose the game. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> That's really funny. And it doesn't untap either, right? No, it doesn't untap either, but I just could not get it in my head that it was a sorcery. That's so funny. (laughs) Number nine, Talarian Terror is the best common to pack one, pick one. 
I am surprised we, we had some wheeling and dealing before uh, the show to like get down to 50 takes we were happy with. I'm surprised I didn't get any pushback here. I mean, ultimately, this is what I want to do. I mean, and if I'm yeah. not doing it, pack one, pick one. When am I ever doing it? So, yeah, I'm down to pack one, pick one of Tolarian Terror. It was just hard for me. I was like, if I see terror in the pack and it's the common I'm most likely to pivot for, you know, if I've got a good start with like a couple of black white cards I'm happy with and then I see a terror pick four, I'm like, well, the upside here is really strong. I just think like it's most supported by its own color and you're happy to pair blue with any of the other four colors. And this is what blue decks do. Right. It's just you can get your essence scatters, your Im- even impede momentums, but like, you know, impulse and, you know, Telerian geyser, obviously, and espionage and timely interference and shore up. Like there's so many instants and sorceries you're happy to play. And I think there's so many things to consider when you talk about pack one, pick ones in this format. Like I think best in the sense here, as in Telerian Terror is the highest ceiling card. Yes. But it's not the highest floor common you could pick. There are no. better commons that are very good that are more likely to make your end deck depending on how you want to draft the format. This format is just so good, but I, I agree. I think Tolerian Terror is certainly the highest ceiling card to pack one, pick one. Well, and that you've well, and that last point dovetails perfectly into point number 10. This is not a format for hard and fast pick orders. And if I have to say, like, if we, you know, go back to what are the things I'll remember about this set? I will remember Kicker. I will remember the common cost reduction creatures. And I will remember that this format was hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around. Yes, I think this was an extraordinarily complex format that demanded that you learned how to draft, like draft for real. Like we couldn't say, this is the best blue common, take it, or this is the best black common, take it. And if you take these top commons from each colors, you can put them together and you'll have a good deck. The format was just way more complex than that. Every time I sat down to like, okay, what do we want to talk about on the podcast this week? There was always some time where I was like, well, we haven't really touched on archetypes. Let me try and see if I can like bucket these archetypes in some way. And it was impossible. I just couldn't do it. This goes back to thinking about it actually being a format of 20 decks or whatever. It was just so hard for me to be like, do I want to write an archetype guide on this deck? But this deck can look so differently. It's just so much different than thinking about, oh, red, black sacrifice is what red, black does in this format. And here's how you draft it. That was just not how this set worked at all. Right. And I think once you took your first card, your pick order shifted. And once you took your second card, they shifted again. And once you took your third card, they shifted again, which is really cool. Yeah. And so it's not a set where you don't have a pick order, right? It's not about not having a ranking of the cards, but it's about having a broader understanding of where the cards are maximized. Yes. Number 11, common dual lands made domain and draft in general very complex. There was a week where we were doing a round table and you had a choice between two lands And I think you had already started taking maybe a couple blue cards and there was like a white blue land and a green black land, let's say. And you took the green land and I'm not I'm fudging with the colors here a little bit, but you took the green land and I was like, huh, why'd you do that? And you're like, if I'm taking lands early, I want them to be green because they're going to be best in domain decks and your domain decks want your lands to touch your base two colors and your base two colors, one of them is going to be green. And I, that was a big light bulb moment for me. Yeah, I think that's personally how I like to go about drafting the green domain decks. There are other schools of thought that say you want your dual lands to be off color or touching your color that is not green so that you can get a lot of forests as well. So I think it just depends on which school of thought you describe to. But certainly you should have reasons for why you are picking which dual land you're picking. And I think another really cool thing you could do with dual land picks is, okay, I'm blue. Do I want to take this 
you know, white red dual land because then it lets me toe the line between splashing the kicker on Tolarian Geyser or maybe splashing the kicker on some timely interferences. Or maybe you value a, a dual land that touches black because you're anticipating maybe seeing Rona's Vortex. Just being able to know what are the good cards that I could see that I am likely to want to splash was a really cool piece of the puzzle for picking dual lands early in the draft. And it also loops back to that idea of which kickers were important, which were sort of bonuses, which you could take or leave. Like, I think there were a lot of people who overvalued the gain three on Tolarian Geyser. And they're like, I got to be able to splash this. And I'm just like, you know, it's nice if you can. But the great thing about this card is just, you know, bounce a thing. You're basically gaining life by bouncing that thing anyway, in a way. And then you draw a card, right? So the kicker is a sort of gravy aspect to that. Whereas some cards like Urborg Repossession, we'll talk about later, like you got to be able to kick that. That's why that card is so good. Well, and another thing that I think they really nailed with the dual lands, is just making them normal commons, right? This format would have been so much worse or so much different if they had been one dual land per pack or something or two dual lands per pack. Like it would have been easy to make that sort of a design decision and i don't think the format would have been nearly as much fun well because then you just have this weird medic like you sort of did in call time of like i'm just gonna take the snow lands and that lets everybody to my left know that i'm taking snow lands because you could sort of see oh someone's drafting domain because they're taking the lands aggressively yeah that would have been way worse i didn't hadn't even thought about that yeah number 12 dmu was the most peasant aka centered around uncommons format ever and like build around uncommons or sort of always exist or we always think they exist or would like them to exist. But this sort of took that to a whole other level because it wasn't like you were building around them in a sense, but it was just, that's where all the power was. That's where a lot of the decisions were in the draft was about the uncommons. Like they really shaped the format. Yeah. The uncommons pushed you in directions. Like you talk about paths, the uncommons were the things that started you down a path. You take Tachiova, you better believe you're starting down a domain path. You take something like Sprouting Goblin down a domain path. You take something like Weather Seed Treaty down a domain path. <laughs> Do you know of any of other paths? <laughs> you take something like the White Knight or the Black Knight. That certainly oh, yeah. sets you down a path for those colors because they're premium two drops. But yes, there were a lot of great domain uncommons. And that's part <laughs> of the reason that domain was the best deck. I was just blanking on powerful uncommons. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Rona's Vortex, a blue spells path. There we go. But I think those uncommons were where the power was at. And I think one of the things this format nailed for me personally, compared to original Dominaria, Dominaria had some powerful uncommons, but there weren't enough to go around, especially compared to the power of commons. But here you had the powerful build around commons and a plethora of premium uncommons. So it always felt like if I drafted well, I had a chance to get a good deck. Like I never felt like there was a draft where I was like, man, I just didn't really see anything this draft, which is something that made this format super fun for me. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's it's like a double edged sword. I was talking to Beers SC about this the other day was it's like a double edged sword because I feel like I got to a point about, you know, 100 drafts deep where I was like, it's all sort of the same, right? The fact that it's built around the uncommons, it does feel, I don't know, cube like or almost constructed light in a sense, because the the decks sort of felt, even though there were about 20 of them in my mind, as you started drafting them, you did understand like the makeup of them and they were consistent to be draftable because they weren't based around rares. Yes, I agree. I am not at that draft mark and I am just now starting to feel the, okay, I've been in this draft before Mm. I know what's likely to happen here based around seeing these uncommons or even something like opening weather seed treaty pack one pick one. I have a feeling now of 
oh, I guess I'm drafting a domain deck, you know? <laughs> and and then that's a letdown to you a little bit. It is, yeah, because I don't want to draft that deck, but I feel like that card is so good and so powerful that it pushes me down that path pretty strongly. I agree, yeah. Number 13, the official Lords of Limited Gold Uncommon Power Rankings Top 5. In first place, Tatiova, Steward of Tides. In a close but clear, I think Tatiova is the clear first, but I think a clear second is Balmor, Battle Mage Captain. In number 3, Ellis Ilkor, Sadistic Pilgrim. Number 4, Wrath, Weatherlight Stalwart. And number 5, Vohar, Vidalian, Desecrator. I didn't realize this until looking at them all in this list. Beyond Tatiova, which I think obviously rawly powerful, these are all two drops. All two drops and all four blue ones are represented here as well. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, a blue black, a blue white, blue red, and blue green. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, blue is awesome. And honestly, you could hand me these in any order outside of Tatiova, and I don't really care. Like, that's one of the cool things about this format. Like, you have a choice between Balmor and Raph. What do you feel like drafting? Do you want to draft blue-white? Take Raph. Do you want to draft blue-red? Take Balmor. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. Number 14, Wingmantle Chaplain is the mythic uncommon of the set. And if we think back, again, thinking about, okay, I'm returning to the format. What are the things I remember? I think this will be, for a lot of people, not for me, and I think not for you, a big scar on the format. Yeah, and I think, honestly, Wingmantle Chaplain is dying a little bit for Shieldwall Sentinel Sins. <laughs> Wingmantle Chaplain wouldn't have been nearly as problematic without the ability to search it up, but do you remember pre-format when people were like, oh, Defender is terrible? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like the best deck to do in the format. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, people love to remind you when you were wrong. They're like, remember when you guys thought this was going to be good and it was bad? No one came back and was like, remember you guys thought Walls was going to be good and it was great? Yeah. I loved the Walls deck going to the format because of Shield Wall Sentinel being able to search up Wingmantle Chaplain. Now, I, did I know that Wingmantle Chaplain was as broken as it was? No, but like... You could definitely see the walls synergy and a common wall that lets you search up walls like it was very hard for that to not be a deck. I think now the best deck in the format didn't know that was going to happen, well, especially because we had seen Shrine Steward in Neon Dynasty earlier this year and we saw how good Shrine Steward was. Obviously, Sentinel searched up less cards, but it just had the same feelings like this is synergistic in the sense that this is a defender can go find your payoffs. I, yeah, I mean, this this was just very good. I like the idea that it died for Sentinel Sins. I mean, you change, people are like, oh, you got to change Chaplain. I'm like, if you just change Shieldwall Sentinel to like the Vampiric Tutor, like it puts it on top of your library instead of into your hand, that like, that solves everyone's problem with Chaplain. Yes, and still lets it be a good deck, I think. Yes, I agree. Number 15, removal is good. Glory, glory, hallelujah, rejoice. Though... You know, we did talk a lot about Lightning Strike at the start of the format. I was like, oh, is there a world where this isn't the best common? And you were like, no. And then the week later, I was like, I agree. I don't think it, I mean, as we talked about Telerian Terror being in our minds the best common, I think Lightning Strike took a slight hit because of Red being weak. But this was definitely a format where like you had to have interaction and there was a lot of good interaction to go around. Yes, and I think being able to interact at a mana advantage was especially important to winning games. Well, and this leads us beautifully into point 16. Protection tricks are good. Because the removal was good, the protection tricks were really good. Shore up and take up the shield. Even Battle Rage Blessing, which was a little bit of a sleeper for me, but as I started to realize, I was like, this is just like a sort of take up the shield light, and that's still a card I'm interested in. Yeah, and I think those protection tricks are also good, not only because the removal was good, because there were also so many good cards to protect. 
There were yes. so many premium uncommons that you wanted to stick and get value from. If you stuck a shore up on your Tachioba when your opponent tried to kill Tachioba, you're probably winning that game unless they have a second removal spell, you know? Mm-hmm. Number 17, Negate is very main deckable in control decks. It just does a really good shore up impression, but also counters a ton of two for ones. If this is divination, the format, a lot of those divinations you can stop on the stack, but you can't stop once they resolve or once they hit the battlefield, you know, their saga is going to uptick, etc. And it wasn't until we were prepping for, you know, arena open and mythic championship qualifier stuff uh, when we had to play sealed that I finally realized I was like, oh, negates good and sealed. Oh, negates just good in this format. Right. And I think largely because of Herborg repossession getting yeah. you know, such a huge boost and negate countering Herborg repossession just stopped some decks game plans. Number 18, DMU's rares are largely limited duds. This was probably the biggest and I would say maybe only knock against the format for me. They're like either clearly for constructed, you know, there, there was that cycle of creature type lords for like clerics or soldiers or merfolk. And I think I actually, I think I may have cast all of them except for the merfolk <laughs> one. Um, or they were just like rawly powerful, like Shouldred or Namada. There was like nothing really in between that was like build aroundy, though you do have a couple addendums. Yeah, Ethan. Joda and Radadrabic would like a word with you. That's fair. That's fair. I do like me a Joda, but Joda really like, I know you just got to play with Joda and it seemed like you had a good experience with it. Like Joda, you, you got to like take a deep, deep breath and sort of like dive into your draft when you decide to take Joda because so many things have to go right for you. Yes. I also never triggered Joda once <laughs> in that draft. I either oh had excessively gosh. large creatures and killed my opponent with them or Joda died on the spot. One of the two. Oh, I see. So you never got to draw cards off of it? Never drew cards, no. Oh, wow. That was one of the things I thought was so good about your deck was you had double Ellis, right? Because one of the things you need for Joda is the two drop legends so that like your three mana or four mana ones can actually consistently draw you cards. Yep. Number 19, walls could be a package or an entire deck's game plan, even without Chaplain. Yeah, I think someone was in my stream a few weeks ago and they were like, I think you probably have drafted the most amount of wall decks without Chaplain. Because I think Shield Wall Sentinel is my second most drafted common. It's like my top Whoa. five. Are, my top five are all black cards except for Shield Wall Sentinel. <laughs> um, shout out to Eerie Soul Tender still being number one for me. But I was always totally happy with either a little walls package in some decks. Obviously, you know, stretching for Chaplain as often as you could. But, you know, I've, I've milled people out with Coral Colony. I've killed people with Blight Piles. I've, you know, killed people with attacking with 5-5 five, five Academy Walls with my Bulwarks. I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I've also drafted some sweet non-Wing Middle Chaplain decks. And I think my most favorite deck of the format was a blue-black walls deck that didn't oh, have... Yeah. Wing Mantle Chaplain it was just very sweet blue black control deck. Here are my most drafted commons. I was very curious. I knew what I wanted to do in the format. Phyrexian Espionage 1, Essence Scatter 2, Geyser 3, Terror 4, Timely Interference 5. Wow. All blue, baby. That's oops, all blue. Yeah, here's my number one Eerie Soul Tender, number two Shield Wall Sentinel, Bone Splinters, Writhing Necromass, Gibbering Barricade. I knew what I wanted to do in the format. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Number 20, DMU Drafts incentivized you to play a synergistic deck where all your cards worked together. I mean, I think that's pretty incredible to have that point right after we just talked about our top drafted comments. 
Yeah, I mean, you clearly played a lot of black. I clearly played a lot of blue. All of our commons worked together, right? Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about the format, too, was that you had to draft a super synergistic deck, but you couldn't lock in on that super synergistic deck too early, or you missed out on a better path for an even more powerful synergistic deck in another lane. Well, and also I think, and you and I never subscribed to the school of thought of like forcing decks or soft forcing or whatever, drafting with preferences. I mean, this sort of takes drafting with preferences to an extreme in some senses, but in another sense, like you really wanted to be open. Like you don't want to start, like, I think it's dangerous to you look at my top commons and go, oh, Ethan's probably forcing black. Like, obviously, I value black cards higher than people. You know, I was taking Aaron and Ellis Core very highly in drafts early on. People are like, how do you get into black white all the time? And I'm like, because I value these cards differently than you do. But I also would see the Telerian Terrors pick four and pick five and go, well, I'm definitely going to see if this deck is open. You know, if you let that deck pass you by, I think you really got punished a little bit. Yes, I completely agree. Number 21, the wheel is super important for identifying the open lane. And this goes back to those off-color kicker cards, right? You know, if you wheel something like Keldon Strike Team, you probably know red-white is open. There are so many cards that go in a very specific deck and are premium in that specific deck. And then those are the type of cards you're likely to see on the wheel if that deck is open because no other drafter wants them because they aren't drafting that deck. Yeah, and I think also the wheel identifies the open lane but it can also identify the closed lane like the reverse can happen of like oh i am expecting this card to wheel and it doesn't and this was a deck that i really don't want to be fighting over with someone else so i gotta find somewhere else to go yes number 22 destroy evil looks like a sideboard card it's not this being two mana, this being instant speed really helped the cost reduction commons being big and targetable by this really helped combat tricks making things big kicker making things big all made this card a lot better than it looked yeah card was great except when it wasn't there were still (laughs) some times where it rotted in your hand against white black or red white and it was a pretty big liability like it could also lose you some games but i think more often than not you were very happy playing one or two copies of destroy evil in your white decks that wanted to interact and it made i mean made citizens rest a lot worse but even prayer of binding like blowing someone out with that Getting to like blow up that thing, get your creature back. That was a real big swing. Yes. Number 23, Read Ahead was a fantastic iteration on sagas. And not only an iteration on sagas in terms of like, that's just a cool idea. I think the cards were designed incredibly well. Like there were so many of them where I would start them on one, two, or three, depending on what was happening in the game. And it never felt like super busted in any of those senses but the fact that they were all situationally good but also were good just progressively just a plus design i think cheers to that number 24 micromancer has a ton of targets this card is incredible yeah card is broken in half in blue you've got shore up timely interference rona's vortex in red you've got flowstone infusion black you've got cut down and i think the piece de resistance Herborg Repossession. Micromancer going to get Herborg Repossession was just out of control powerful. That's conceitable. I think you see your opponent play Micromancer, find Repossession, and they can kick Repossession. I think you're allowed to concede the game. Oh, I always support everyone's right to concede. (laughs) (laughs) 
Number 25, speaking of Urborg repossession, it was an entire game plan in and of itself in this format. Late game decks built around this card were very powerful. Like just having a couple of these, certainly when you could also buy back, like buying back two creatures, obviously great. But when you had like a powerful saga to get back two, that was really awesome. The fact that you could like buy back, buy backing creatures like Bortuk Bone Rattle or Phyrexian Missionary, like or whatever, do the Vohar loop thing with it, which isn't really a loop, but you get to do it a few times. Like this was really a recipe for a lot of value. But you also had to know how to do it, right? You couldn't just pick Urborg Repossession as a good card and put it in your deck and expect to win with it. You had to know how to build a deck that maximized Urborg Repossession, like a control deck that had enough bodies that could get back your key cards. You had to know what those key cards were. You had to make sure the game stalled out or went long. I think that was one of the other things that I loved about this format so much was when I lost, I knew I was losing to an opponent that had done something like they drafted a deck. They knew how their (laughs) cards worked together and they had a plan. And it feels much more pleasant to lose to that than some randomly busted card. Yeah, that's true. I also think like there was a point around week four or five of this format where everybody knew in quotes knew that Urborg repossession was very good and then just started jamming like two or three copies in decks where you couldn't reliably kick it in decks where you only had like 13 creatures. And that was just a recipe for disaster. That is going to not maximize that card. That's not a deck where that card is a game plan. It's similar to, you know, Talarian Geyser emerged as this is just the best common in the set. And then everybody started putting it in their decks or splashing it off of a few dual lands. It's like, sure, but this isn't actually why this card is so good. Right. Number 26, Walking Bulwark and Colossal Growth Grant Haste? Question mark? Haste? I, Grant like, Haste. I couldn't believe it. Like when you got to play turn five, you play Academy Wall, give it haste, attack with a 5-5. Five, five. What? I mean, it's pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Number 27, Relic of Legends can do some tricky things. I had a lot of enjoyable moments in this format. I think it has to be top top five is just getting people by turning Zar Ojanin and Rada Coalition Warlord into combat tricks with Relic of Legends. I did that for the first time in that Jota deck, and it felt really good. It's just like because... No one, if you haven't seen it, like if you don't play the format as much as we do, if you don't think about stupid interactions as much as I do, like you're just not expecting that to happen. Yeah. Wizards really tries to get rid of onboard tricks for this reason, because once it happens, (laughs) you're like, oh, man, I'm an idiot. And they don't want their customers to feel like idiots. And just being able to be like, oh, I'm oh, I'm tapped out. My relic is tapped. And then you go, oops, I can cast shore up because I have a legend untapped. Like that also just got people a lot. Yep. Relic of Legends was sweet. Number 28, Domain came in two flavors. And I think that was either A, late game value, or B, maybe even the better version was Red Green Stompy. Do you have a feeling about that? Oh, I think the late game version was better. Certainly once the word was out about Red Mm. Green Stompy. I think there was probably a week where Red Green Stompy was the better of the two decks because it was so unknown. But once it was known, I certainly think the late game value deck was better. And I think in Red Green Stompy, you can shout out a few cards. Certainly Miria's Outrider. And that maybe even towed the line between the two. That could just be a game plan in and of itself. (laughs) I heard someone talking about picking that up with Golden Argosy and that being the way that they just like killed their opponent. Um, Certainly the tricks, Gaia's Might as single mana plus five plus five and Colossal Growth, as we talked about, being being able to give plus four plus four and trample in those red green decks. 
And then probably the best of the bunch, well, maybe Neshoba Brawler is the best of the bunch, but highest ceiling, certainly, the Weather Seed Treaty. Yeah, that card was excellent. Searching up your land, fixing your domain, and then giving you a plus five, plus five boost to close the game out with. Very strong. Mm-hmm. Number 29, the hyper-aggressive cards didn't have a home in the set. Looking at you, Lana Warstalker and Hammerhand, and this is honestly, I think, one of the things that Eldraine does really well, and this is I'm thinking about it not only because it's a flashback draft right now on Arena, but also because it is my, my GOAT format, that I think that the fact that there was that Wildwood Tracker, Rosethorn Halberd, Merrileaf Rider deck that was just like these derpy green aggressive cards that actually worked really well together and actually made a very synergistic deck. When I saw Llanowar Stalker and Hammerhand and I guess to a lesser extent Viachino Branch Rider, but that was actually, I think, playable in the red green Stompy deck. But those three cards, I was like, ooh, maybe we're going to get that deck. And we just didn't quite. Didn't quite get there. Nope. Number 30. Getting a mana advantage on your opponent was one of the best and honestly easiest ways to win games in this format. It was about getting ahead on those two for ones, but getting ahead on mana was huge. Right. And there were two ways to do that, right? You could interact cheaply. So get a mana advantage in how you were interacting with your opponent or also just like literally getting more lands on the battlefield from hitting land drops through things like divination or shadow prophecy and just literally having eight mana on the board when your opponent had five that's another way to get a mana advantage and both of those whichever side of the spectrum you're on great things to do in the format there were also fun little puzzles with the cost reduction creatures specifically the esper ones where i would definitely have turns where i you know i'd cast my telerian terror on turn five because yeah that's great But then I would think, oh, man, if I had actually done creature spell this turn or, you know, if I'm in black, I'm like, oh, if I had actually cast Eerie Soul Tender, then maybe next turn I could have cast two drop plus Necromast, depending on what I milled or, you know, in blue with the spells or oh, if I had sequenced my creatures better in white, I could have had this Phalanx for two mana next turn. That was also really important to getting a mana advantage if you could like get those cost reduction creatures down as much as possible. Number 31, the official Defiler power rankings. Number one, Defiler of Vigor, the green Defiler. Number two through five, the other ones. Yeah, the rest of these just didn't matter, right? I know. It's so weird. Like, Defiler of Dreams looks like it should be good. That's the blue one that cantrips. Well, first of all, they look like they should be good because, you know, they're giving they're they're big bad bodies with, you know, keywords, they have bonuses, and they reduce the cost of your cards, right? Cheating on mana is a way to win games of magic. But like, and the blue one draws you cards, but they just they just didn't matter. Like blue doesn't have permanence. Yeah, they just didn't line up. Blue didn't have permanence. Black wasn't really about giving your things menace and attacking. Red was just kind of bad, like for being base red. And then the white one was good, but white wanted you to vomit out your hand before the white defiler came down. Yeah. Number 32, Tribute to Urborg was Black's best removal spell, period. I think especially in terms of picking it early in the draft. And there was, again, a big discussion about Tribute, Cut Down, Extinguish, firmly on Team Tribute as flexible early like does a good lightning strike impression early in the game, but also does a great extinguish the light impression late in the game. Well, and it's also got like slight build around or maybe it's more synergistic, right? Now you're not building around it, but you see it early in a draft and you recognize, ooh, the ceiling on this card is quite high. And I would love to get into a blue black deck with self mill and spells or blue green domain. And this can be, you know, a good maybe early, but definitely late game removal spell for me. Or I can be in black green self mill and splash the blue part. Like 
it does give you a nudge in a direction. Yes. Number 33, Vine Shaper Prodigy is not Organ Hoarder or a card that mattered much in the format at all. You agree with this, right? Oh, 100%. I was arguing with our, our mystical dispute friends uh, because they had a, <laughs> they had an episode recently about the, quote, bad cards in the format, and I was needling mostly Garrett, and I was like, you guys didn't talk about any two-mana tutus as bad cards on your episode. And they were like, well, what bad two-mana tutus are there? And all I was like, them? all of them? <laughs> like, that aren't the knights? But I said Vine Shaper Prodigy, and they were like, whoa, Vine Shaper Prodigy is bad as a take. I was like... This is four mana impulse. This card just doesn't matter. Like it's I'm not saying it's it's not bad or embarrassing or anything. Like you can put it in your deck, but I never pick it highly. I never end a draft and go, darn, if only I had prodigy in my deck. It's a filler. Yeah. It's filler hundred percent. So filler C or filler D? (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's next week when we talk about the grading scale. (laughs) Number 34, cleaving skyrider can go face. This card is very good. This is the two and a white, two, two flyer has kicker for two and a red. When it enters the battlefield, you deal damage to any target equal to the number of attacking creatures. I mean, this card just ends games, baby. I never have kicked a cleaving skyrider, but I have been kicked in the face by it a couple times. <laughs> Number 35, Aaron Benalia's Ruin and Baird, Argivian Recruiter, were besties. Best friends. Baird's like, hey, hey, buddy, can you make if you make our creatures bigger? I'll make a 1-1 every turn. And Aaron's like, hey, if you make a 1-1 every turn, I'll make our creatures bigger. And you just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. By our powers combined. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Number 36, Runic Shot and Artillery Blast are secret domain cards. Now, Artillery Blast, not so secret. It does say domain on it, but like (laughs) (laughs) definitely don't put this in a white deck. Um, runic shot, you know, you could play that in blue, white control decks as well, but I think it's, it was honestly, it's best home was as cheap splashable removal in domain decks. Number 37, overcosted threats were overplayed. Oof, looking at you, Shalai's Acolyte, Sengir, go oh, Ben, can you say this one? Sengir Connoisseur. Elfheim Worm, Tattered Apparition, what was a white one? Coalition Sky Knight, like... All of these four mana, two, two flyers, five mana, three power flyers, Elfheim Worm, like these cards just were filler with a capital F. Yeah, especially if they didn't do anything on ETB, just almost unplayable. Number 38, the best aggressive deck was Boros. Shout out to Keldon Strike Team. This is the three mana, three one uh, that gives everything haste when it comes into play. And if it's kicked, it makes two one ones. Man, I got to say that one time I drafted that sick Boros deck, being able to do six mana cast Argivian Phalanx for one and then kick a Keldon Strike team and attack with everything with haste. Woo, so good. That is a turn. I also did my uh, format perennial second look at 17 lands at the end of the format. I look at it once <laughs> at the beginning of the format and once at the end of the format. And Red White had the best win rate, not particularly close on 17 lands, which is kind of wild to me. Like, I know Red White is good, but that also just says to me, and looking at the other win rates on 17 lands, I think people just struggled in this format a lot. And red white was a very good, clear deck that was like, do this thing Mm -hmm. and smash face. And you could have an easy, straightforward plan. And I think it was just hard to draft some of the better decks that had more complex game plans. Or I think also hard to draft the better decks that weren't straightforward, like A plus B decks. Like I think, I think people had a lot of success with blue red early in the format, partially because it was clear, like, 
draft things that care about spells and draft spells. And that was easy to do. And that's a deck we've seen before. But there were a lot more nuanced decks in the format as well. Number 39, Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief was a viable build around and terrifying to play against. Yeah, so this is green blue for a two one flyer, which again, just good, like two mana two one flyer is good. But then the fact that anytime a thing was targeted by an instant or sorcery, you could copy that thing and the copy had to target Ivy. The best thing to do, I think, I mean, obviously, the, the best thing to do was be aggressive and, you know, cast Gaia's Might on one of your creatures and then get to copy it for free and target Ivy. But you could also just like have it be a value engine, turns uh, timely interference into like one mana draw two, which is really good. Yeah, card was just a nightmare for someone like me to play against also, because my tendency as a magic player is to imagine things my opponents could have without thinking very critically about why they could have it. And so like Ivy just, what if they have Gaia's Might here? I just lose. What if they have this? I just lose. Oh, no. Number 40, Golden Argosy would be busted in any other format. And I was probably a Golden Argosy defender for too long. But like most ETBs in the set were either kicker related, so you couldn't get them when they blinked, or honestly on cast, like Bortuck Bone Rattle. Why does that say if it was cast? So that it can't be abused by things like this. It's it's not fair. (laughs) I want to abuse it. Like the best you could do is like put it in black, white and you know, get a 1-1 from Argivian Cavalier or draw a card from Phyrexian Rager. It just, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess the best thing to do is blink walls and blink Chaplin. But like, does Chaplin really need that help? Probably not, no. Yeah. <laughs> Number 41, appropriate that I'm getting this one. Karn Living Legacy is good. Wait, why is this appropriate? Because I passed it to you in one of our showdown oh. videos. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. This card is good. Yeah. Karn Living Legacy is a great card. It's just a very good control card. And there is like this some weird, and we will talk about a certain red uncommon saga a little later. But, you know, there is a little bit of artifacty stuff happening with some niche rares um, and uncommons in the set. But like Karn is just a good control finisher. Number 42, the Golden Egg Award does not go to Salvaged Mana Worker. I don't think there is a Golden Egg Award. I was trying to rack my brain around this, and I couldn't come up with one because there's so many different distinct decks. There's not a card that lets you do all of the things. Right. So like a Golden Egg Award winner is something that is a glue card, a cheap glue card, ideally. Like for a while, I was thinking, I was like, maybe it's Talarian Terror. But no, that's a build around. It's not like a flexible synergistic card. And that's what a golden egg is or for forbidden friendship or whatever that you want those cards that keep a bunch of pads open there aren't really cards like that in the set might be impulse maybe yeah maybe impulse is the golden egg winner i could see it i don't know yeah definitely not salvage mana worker card was hot garbage point for you <laughs> number 43 maria's outrider has reach number 44 drafting with your destination in mind was critical to avoid getting lost in the many paths a draft can take yeah, drafting with the end in mind, like every, I think this is important for any set, but this set really highlights it of like every card you take, what's the deck I might end up in where this card is going to be good in it? And that you have to have that question in the forefront of your mind with every pick. Yeah, it's absolutely true for every format, but I think the thing that is interesting or difficult or unique about this format is that there were so many things you had to hold yeah. in your head in this format because of how many paths there were 
and how many different decks there were and how many tweaks you could make to all those different decks. It just required you to have a lot of format knowledge and hold a lot of things in your head. It just occurred to me, this is going to be like, we make these 50 takes episodes partially for people who are new to the format. This is going to be a hard set to come back to a for the first time, but also B for like returning drafters. You know, you think about drafting Eldraine for the first time and dusting off the cobwebs. How many drafts of DMU is it going to take before you go, oh, this is what this format was like? Yeah, I think not that so much. I think you'll probably just be missing out on some equity. It won't be undraftable. You'll just maybe not keep a couple paths open that you could have or you'll lock in a little too early. But I don't think it's going to be undraftable or anything. Like my first Eldraine deck was unplayable. (laughs) (laughs) Number 45, Territorial Marrow is huge. Yeah, I think there was a a little bit of speculation or a question mark for, for both of us really at the start of the format of like, is this a reason to do the domain thing? Is this a reward? Does keyword big matter? Keyword big maybe doesn't matter. Keyword huge, an 8-8 or a 10-10. <laughs> Keyword huge matters. I agree. That card was large and there were ways to give it trample. It was very good. I love this next point. Number 46. It depends was the most common answer to questions in this format. It really was. I mean, you could not give solid, hard and fast answers. And it was honestly just kind of hard to agree on things in general because there were so many different ways to draft the format. But I feel like it depends or I don't care which pick I make. It just has implication for future picks were my most common thoughts about this format. Well, and one of the things that I think we really like to do on the podcast, as we talked about early in the format, is give people you know the tools to fish for themselves, right? We don't want to give them fish. We want to teach them how to fish. And this format was really hard to do that, but it also challenged us to, okay, normally we would be you know, outlining archetypes or giving people maybe some, some more pick orders, or maybe we could do... We just had to talk about stuff in so much more abstract or big picture things for so many weeks. And it was less interesting. You know, oftentimes when we do roundtables, you and I will like, you know, go to war with, uh, no, it's this pick. No, it's this pick. But like we would disagree, but it wasn't about who ended up being right, who emerged with the correct pick. It was just, here's something you can do. Here's another thing you can do. Right. I think this format was just an advanced format and we had to talk about it in advanced terms. And I I think we did a good job of teaching the format. I hope we did. But yeah, this was a really cool format that merely made you learn how to draft. Agree. Number 47, Dominaria United feels solved personally on my end at this point, like as in I know how I want to draft it but it doesn't feel solved by the community. Yeah, like one of the things that I imagine is really hard for a listener or viewer or a a more casual drafter, someone who really likes limited, but maybe drafts just once a week or, you know, only has has time to piece together best of one games throughout a day or, or throughout a week is you watch one stream, you listen to one podcast, you read an article, and they're all saying different things. There's no consensus. And that, and that's really hard to, consume that content and not feel incredibly confused. Yeah. And I think one of the coolest things about this format is I don't think there is going to be a community consensus. And I don't think it's wrong that there's not a community consensus. I think you have to answer some questions for yourselves about what you think the best archetypes are or what you think the best cards are, and then steer towards those things. Because there's so many things to do in the format that if you don't make some of those decisions for yourself, you're just going to get lost and end up nowhere. 
So I think you have to make some hard and fast decisions about, I think this is the best archetype. This is how I'm going to steer towards it. This is what I want to do in the format if it's an option. And I think it's really hard for an entire community to agree on those things. And I think there were so many sweet things to do in the format that it's cool that we have not come to a consensus as a community. Number 48, Yosha declares war almost ended the podcast. Is this true? Like how, how on a scale of one to 10, how like frustrated were you with me drafting that <laughs> card, posting it to Twitter? Like, do you, do you like get it at all? Or are you just like, this doesn't make any sense to me? I get it from your perspective of like being <laughs> a content creator and what you like to do. I was mildly annoyed that it ended up in your team draft deck. <laughs> Because uh-huh. I don't think it was optimal. I, but I think you know what you're doing with the card. I think it's hilarious that I put it in our tier rankings that only you should pick it. And I think that further spurred your, your obsession with the card. Yes. So, I mean, like, I get all of it. And I love you for who you are. That's very sweet. That's lovely. And we haven't talked about it. So I just I just want to make sure that we, we do put it in and like put it on the show so that everybody knows if you're not on Twitter. There was a time uh, when I was streaming with it and Stunlock FTW was like, okay, I looked at 17 lands. In best of three draft, this card has been cast like whatever, 253 times. How many of those do you think you're responsible for? And I was like, I don't know. I wonder if 17 lands can give us the data. So I tweeted at them. They got back to me and they said 36. So I was responsible for 14%. (laughs) (laughs) of a card's appearance and probably even more so since then because of but by proxy you know right like people watching your stream being like oh i love ethan i'm gonna draft this sweet (laughs) yosha declares war deck and tweeted at him (laughs) and how many yeah exactly and how many like how much win percentage have i cost people oh so much you're like (laughs) you're like it's like in football like the bill belichick coaching tree like all of his assistant coaches get hired and her head coaches other places you're like the Yosha declares war puppet master. So like directly responsible for 36, but I would say at least half via proxy. Uh, So funny. Number 49, differentiating between the two drops that mattered and those that didn't was extremely important. Uh, I, this is so huge for again, any format, but this one in particular, like just being like, aha, yes. Juniper order root weaver doesn't matter. We talked about it already. Vine shaper prodigy doesn't matter. The two uncommon knights, really matter yes huge reasons to draft those decks and those colors and finally number 50 dominaria united is not the goat the greatest of all time but it is an at it is an all timer this format is you know where is it for me it's definitely top five it might be creeping into top three and i I think it honestly might edge out war of the spark for me If, if my top three is eldraine akoria And War, I think this is up there now. Yeah, I love War of the Spark personally. I think this is probably a healthier format and a better format to force people to learn how to draft. But I love War of the Spark. I don't know. But I agree. DMU is an all-timer. I think we called it week one, week two, whatever. And I stand by how I felt then. This format is awesome. And I think the best thing about this format is that it forced people to get better at drafting. Right. The thing you heard a lot was people being like, I'm having fun despite struggling. I'm having fun despite losing. And so that speaks more to your point earlier about like, you know, when you lost games, you didn't feel like your opponent cheesed out a win. You felt like your opponent did something and that's why you lost. And I think People internalize that you weren't didn't have these. I'm playing a game. I'm playing a game. And then this bomb hits the battlefield and I oops, I lose. You had 
you saw clear game plans come together. And so even if you weren't doing that yourself, you saw your opponent doing it and you could sort of maybe then piece that together for the next draft. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think for me, takeaway from this format is the the common cost reduction creatures. Like the fact that you know, we've been playing magic as long as we have and we spend as much time and effort as we do, like peering through spoilers and trying to figure out what's going to be good. And those weren't really on our radar. And then how format shaping they ended up being is a really cool puzzle. And I really appreciate that sort of thing from Wizards. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thanks so much to TCG Player for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over there, please use our affiliate link for any and all purchases that you're making, signing up for a TCG Player subscription. You can do that by visiting lordsoflimited.com slash TCG Player or navigating from our website itself to the support page and clicking on that link. Uh, if you want to check out our streams, we are streaming at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware and twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, respectively. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter. Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later.